Welcome everyone to another episode of the Manchester Green New Deal podcast. My name is Adam Williams and joining me is the man that makes us all sound great, half man, half mixing deck producer Andrew Glassford and one of Manchester's finest journalists, Alex King. How you doing fellas? Loving the hype as ever. Always mate. If I can't hype you up, who's going to do it? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I'm good man, I'm good. In slightly less positive news, uh, well I guess it's probably positive, South Manchester also escaped... Uh, the deluge, just about. Yeah, although they did, they did evacuate what three hundred homes in uh, in Didsbury from the flooding. Thousands, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think everyone's all right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, it was, it was good to good to hear that in, in the end because it was a worry for a while. One good thing about living in North Manchester, these things never <laughs> it all just trickles downhill. <laughs> <laughs> we just watch from afar and say, you know. Come and come for a visit if you need us. Oh dear. <laughs> Where would we be without you? <laughs> okay, so we spoke to Matt Rack of the Fire Brigades Union because we felt that the FBU is uniquely placed among unions as their members are fighting on the front line of climate breakdown. This week we're having an unofficial unions part two episode. The GMB is the third largest union in the UK, which represents people from a whole host of trades. Last October, I reached out to some of their members after hearing that there had been a grassroots campaign within the GMB to have the union formally adopt a Green New Deal. Declan Owens is one such member. He's also a member of the United Voices of the World Union, as well as being the current chair of the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers. Declan, a warm welcome to the show, mate. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, the GMB, it's the third largest union in the UK, I believe, um, and it's what's known as the, a general trade union. Could you tell us a little bit, bit about its history? Yes, it's got a wide range of sectors within it, and it's um, undergone a number of amalgamations over the years. So it is a case of unity is strength, and it has um, a lot of power and influence within the trade union movement and indeed within the Labour Party. So that manifested in the recent election of um, Keir Starmer, where, you know, there's support for him after um, Lisa Nandy initially had the support. So, you know, we, we have a, a long history with the Labour Party and with the workers' movement. Yeah. And just a, just a very basic trade union question. What are the pros and cons of a trade union representing a multitude of trades rather than a select or related trades? Yes, I think that there are pros in the, in the sense that you can have cross-sectoral solidarity and learning processes from different sectors of the economy. So that, that then gives the union a better understanding into different processes in collective bargaining and in industrial tactics and the insight into how management works across sectors. And then there's an inherent learning process that develops and different members learn from each other. And the leadership um, gets an institutionalized understanding of how to um, advance their members' interests as a whole. However, it does lose some of the focus that maybe a smaller union that represents just one sector like the um, fire brigades union, because in that, in that instance, you, you have um, specialists, they, they have the ability to develop their program over time. They 
build them and build um, the specialism and then they are seen as a, the unique voice of the particular workforce um, which is the case with the, the fire brigade union just to kind of, kind of jump in I, I don't really know much about gmb um that my kind of first contact with them was from hearing about what happened uh at the labor party conference in 2019 when the their green new deal motion kind of went through and um, gmb was the kind of one of the sticking points in getting it passed through the the conference because of you know the the asks for radical decarbonization and you know which would affect a lot of jobs that gmb does like it's designed to support you know in 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 coal and gas and other kind of heavy industries and obviously you're you're in the the union in a different capacity to that what's changed since 2019 inside gmb internally like to kind of go okay we need to now grab hold of this and you know make it our own i think it's a grassroots movement at the moment the leadership still have to be persuaded um they right. have um the interests of their members in mind whenever they're defending jobs even if it's in um polluting industries like um the air and aviation sectors so for example um there were GMB members who were celebrating um, the recent decision to expand Heathrow, whereas right. we were criticising it. So that does um, lead to certain contradictions, but then it's similar to what I was saying to Adam in relation to one of the disadvantages of having a wide um, number of sectors within a union. However, you know, we're a democratic union and um, we are permitted to dissent and we do yeah i criticize the leadership for not having a more enlightened view towards the issue you know we'll continue to apply pressure as is right in any democracy so declan i've been in a couple of discussions recently about what constitutes a green new deal you know as in what gives a group the confidence to create one and also what is the common thread that connects our green new deals so where, where do you stand on this? What, what made you think that, you know, you guys could make a Green New Deal? Why, why was it that brand or, or that sort of, um, of energy that you wanted to bring to, to the GMB? Well, I think it's um, looking back in history in some ways. So the New Deal in the United States was a time when um, the American government supported widespread infrastructural change for the benefit of society in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash. So there are certain parallels following the financial crisis. And insofar as this government and the previous governments have failed to invest in the infrastructure of this country and in the people of this country, one of the best ways to invest in the future is to think in terms of a green new deal and there's going to be further industrial changes changes in the economy changes in jobs and therefore they need to be climate friendly particularly in the aftermath of the paris agreement and the international legal obligations of the uk to adhere to the climate goals and to stay well below two degrees so there are targets there it makes sense industrially, it makes sense economically, and it makes sense politically. So Declan, what does it look like for a trade union to be for a Green New Deal then? And what are the first steps to launching a campaign to realise that? Well, it can be as simple as a WhatsApp group and um, 
Facebook group and Twitter profile to get people interested within the union yeah. in this issue. Now, I had a prior interest insofar as I worked for the International Trade Union Confederation in Brussels, and they had policies regarding a just transition. So I was always interested in this area. And I also joined a group called the Campaign Against Climate Change Trade Union Group. So I was aware of these um, networks and the growing interest in this area within trade unions. Yeah. Therefore, I was particularly keen within my own union that they represent the um, views that I have. And then because they don't, then it's up to me and other like-minded uh, trade union members of the GMB to advocate within our own union for the sort of enlightened policies that are for the benefit of our members, but for society as a whole. Were there any particular versions of a GND that inspired your creation, your, your your version of a GND? Well, for me, I take a socialist analysis to the issue of climate justice and the need for system change for climate justice. So in the sense that there are different models of what a Green New Deal may be, I don't want a greenwashed model of a Green New Deal. I, I want a radical socialist agenda. I, I want... Um, the governing party of the United Kingdom to make substantial radical changes that are necessary for the economy and to look ahead for 50 years at the sort of infrastructure that's needed, the sort of policies and social change that that's going to bring to the benefit of the people of this country, but also other countries, because there's also the issue of climate migration. Climate migration manifests in a hostile environment to asylum seekers and refugees. And therefore, there is going to be more climate migration in the years to come, and people need to plan for it. They, they need to um, show solidarity with those that are affected in other countries as well. So these are the concerns that I have had, and therefore it needs to be an international process but we need to get our house in order within Britain and in Ireland as well. Uh, maybe it's worthwhile kind of trying digging down into any like initial policy ideas you guys have then, uh, because kind of like Ads was alluding to, there's so many Green New Deals out there right now. So what dif- what uh, kind of slant is GMB coming with it? Um, so speaking of just just transitions, obviously kind of um, encompasses a move away from fossil fuels and um, other kind of. Uh, dirty industries to some some degree. What do you envisage those new jobs should be for those workers, and what what should the support look like for them? So I think the um, technological development of the the last number of years um, has allowed for many new exciting jobs in various sectors where workers will be able to be retrained. Now, it may be the the electric cars were, um, you know, just today, the Sunderland plant was um, supported by Nissan in terms of their vision for the the work and the um, type of um, cars that they're going to be selling over the the, the next um, 10 years or so. So that's one instance. Um, There's a need for public transport um, to be prioritised and the way in which that can have a knock-on effect in the um, 
way in which people drive less cars in any event. And, you know, it, it also in influences the um, aspirations of our young people who are at school at the moment. So teachers also need to be aware of the new um, careers that their um, students could be going into. There needs to be better education of teachers themselves. And we've got education unions that support our policies as well. So, you know, it's cross-sectoral um, drive. It, it's, you know, going to affect everybody in the country, every worker, every family, every community. So where we can lead within our sector and our um interests we will try to do that but also for for wider society sure Declan you, you've talked I think in the article that ads alluded to he linked us earlier today you talk about a trust this is on labor list on the labor list website you talk about a just transition being achieved through targeted community investment funds and I think in the article you draw on the example of Germany North Rhine-Westphalia of that working as a working example could you tell us a bit more about that, how that would work in terms of a, as a programme of reskilling? Well, there's an interesting institutional background to the way workers are retrained and supported in that process within continental European societies compared to in, in Britain and Ireland. So we're here, um, people struggle on uh, universal credit or job seekers alliance in certain continental European countries, they have um, a certain percentage of their previous wage, and they have the support of the trade union in in actually retraining during the process where they have lower wages. So one needs to understand the institutional background and the politics that underlie the other countries before you can seek to transplant it to, to the, the UK. Sure. So, and so far as Germany and other countries are concerned, they also have um, stronger trade union engagement with management. They have works councils where they have workers elected to council and they may also have co-determination mechanisms where they have workers on the board. So they are more enlightened in their approach towards trade unions, albeit under the European Union, there's been a drift away from that in, in recent um, years. However, the, the long lag of um, institutional unionization within those economies and the more progressive working arrangements with management also lead to less inequality, but also better engagement where there's transitions needed in particular sectors. So they can come to more sensible arrangements and not always see unions as a problem in the way that um, certain British uh, political parties seem to do. Yeah, they don't see um, unions as like the enemy per, per se. Yeah. To, to kind of follow on from that a little bit, actually, in, in regards to the workers' boards in Germany, do you think there should be more of a shift to co-ops and co-determinism, as, as you say, in, in the German model, where workers get a lot more of a say in the, in the production of stuff as opposed to, you know, the, the capitalism we run here where, you know, there's a boss and says, go clean that toilet. And if you don't, you're on your hook. Like, do you think yeah. ownership models need to change drastically as well in a GND to um, 
for it to work properly. Yes, well, as a socialist, you know, I have strong views on on that. But um, certainly in the current um, economic model, the way that companies are constituted and theorized within the United Kingdom and the US as well, they give greater power to shareholders than to workers and therefore delegated down to management. And that shareholder model has failed our economy and it's failed the US economy in a lot of ways, particularly in terms of worker protection, environmental um, protection, and the way in which the societies are run. So companies like Carillion can run wild and then there's um, thousands of jobs lost um, in pursuit of shareholder value. Whereas in the wake of that, there are people, there are families that are suffering as a result. So I I would certainly advocate at least a system where workers are on the board. They have, I would say, an equal right to management to determine the future of a company And they should have a certain amount of seats on the board and they should be consulted on major decisions. And the protections in that regard in in the UK are are very weak. And um, it's it's virtually unheard of um, for that sort of system to um, be operative. And that's one of the reasons why we have so much inequality and why the um, wages have slipped below the standard of living in a lot of cases. I love the first two lines of your proposal that you put out to your GMB members. I'm just going to read them out just so the audience know what it is. And it says, this is not the first time that the organized working class has been called upon to fix the problems caused by the wealthy and the powerful. But we find ourselves in a position where we must act to prevent a catastrophe caused by the rich. However, when it comes to climate breakdown, there are many working class people that are heavily invested in industries that are are part of the problem. I'm thinking just off the top of my head, taxi drivers, bus drivers, airline workers, and this can often blur the lines. Um, But also separate to this, climate consciousness is not a traditional part of trade union class consciousness. So how do you overcome these two distinct issues? Oh, I think it is difficult. I I recognise that because people feel they need job security, they need the jobs that are in their communities at the moment. And those decisions are often made by capital. And that has been the case throughout history. But I I would contest the notion that trade unionists haven't been involved in climate policies and addressing issues in relation to climate throughout their history, because the Industrial Revolution was strong in Manchester, for example. There was a lot of smog, there was a lot of poor working conditions and health and safety issues in relation to um, how workers were treated, how they lost life and limb, in fact, through the the evolution of capitalist um, industries and the way in which that impacted them, whether it's coal mining or construction. And indeed, I represented um, trade unionists that were blacklisted for their efforts in trying to highlight health and safety on building sites. So I think class consciousness is important. Part of class consciousness is to recognize that there are different um, aspects to um, your brother and sister who have different jobs in different parts of the country, for example, through the way in which uh, the society has uh, delineated its resources and industries. So 
we can differentiate and you can seek to create a situation where there's flourishing industries in a new way. You know, if, if, if you look at the development of society and technology, even in the, the last 20 years with the advent of internet and digital technology, that has had a material change on working class consciousness, but also the jobs that they do. So, you know, more people are involved now in logistics and that sort of thing. But the constant in that development is the need for workers to be protected, to have collective voice and to have that voice heard by capital and by their representatives in government. And that hasn't been the case because of the attacks on trade unions from Thatcher right through to Blur. And unfortunately, under Keir Stammer, he's not showing sufficient support for the union movement. And it is a union movement that um, retains class consciousness over generations and has historical memory and therefore will create the class consciousness that is necessary for a just transition, that is necessary for a Green New Deal. And I'm fully confident with the right leadership with the right voices advocating Green New Deal policies, just transition policies, we will move to a situation where we in some ways follow our young people who are on school strikes. And, you know, we will look at a society that's more in line with what we want as socialists and as working class people. I would I would argue that a lot of like, Labour historically has been very bad at supporting trade unions. Like, you know, the, the Miliband years was awful. Um, Tony Blair very awful as well. If anything, Keir Starmer coming out and supporting the GMB gas workers is actually a bit of a precedent um, as opposed to, you know, kind of carrying on in that way. Although you could argue, well, I would argue that he should have come out and supported the NEU, but then that's a different question. So you're you're a solicitor, but by trade, Declan. Yes. Yeah, because yeah. I, I think it's it's really easy to go, for us to oversimplify this and make the, the GMB like a an industry trade union which is not you know which you've laid out very succinctly um i'd kind of like to know more about what it means to be a, a socialist solicitor because i've very rarely heard those words put together in my head you know solicitors and lawyers and the people that work um in, in the chambers are all very either right wing or centrist or technocratic to a certain degree so how does being a, a socialist kind of interact with your legal practice well, it's a good point, Andrew. I think you're right that the majority of lawyers defend the interests of capital. However, I'm a lawyer in a firm that represents trade unionists and workers and right. doesn't represent employers or insurers. And I work within the trade union law group within my firm, and we focus on those issues which are of interest for strategic reasons for the union movement. Right. I'm also the chair of the, the Haldane Society of Socialist Lawyers, and that's a society that goes back to 1930. And the idea with socialist lawyers is that we recognize that we are socialists and we use the law as a tool for progressive social change to right. try to achieve socialism. And we link ourselves with campaign groups up and down the country and internationally. And in that way, we try to subvert that notion about lawyers who are only interested in money, who are ambulance chasers. Now, there is a lot of that, unfortunately, but we link ourselves with communities, with campaigns. And, you know, 
socialism was there before human rights was conceived as yeah. a concept in a lot of ways. Certainly the modern um, definition of um, human rights, which is more liberal and more um, centrist. But from a socialist perspective, we look at economic and social rights as being as important as civil and political rights. Mm. And the way that we operate is that we will link with various um, campaigns and we could have people who are in immigration law, um, employment law, crime, family, social welfare, and they will present their campaign and we will take a collective position as a society to represent the interests right. of working people, including um, those that are in need of legal aid in particular. To, to your point about you know the difference between yourself and um, the perception of most lawyers, what was it like going through education with that kind of being the expectation on you to be, you know, like, in your words, an ambulance chaser? <laughs> it was difficult at times. And, you know, there is um, a lot of student debt and um, expectation within society, within one's own family, even that you are going to earn a lot of money and that's the way it is. Um, but the ideals that drove me towards practicing law were mainly political. I observed over my studies the need for human rights, the need for political change, um, particularly growing up in Ireland. I also noted that a lot of the um, progressive lawyers in history, like Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, were were lawyers before they were uh, politicians. Right. And the, the way in which I then sought to... Um, sort of get through the expectations for a more commercial process was to join the Haldian Society of Socialist Lawyers and to learn from people who had gone through that process before me and who showed solidarity in that environment because there's very much a, you know, a way of thinking, particularly within London, where, um, you know, you go there to, to earn a lot of money and you serve the rich to make rich people richer. And, yeah. you know, that was never my goal and therefore, trade union law and human rights was uh, the way forward for me. Yeah. So, De Declan, just just to uh, just thinking about trade unions as a whole, uh, what's the current thinking at the moment within the GMB about engaging a modern workforce to become union members? And when I say a modern workforce, I mean, unfortunately, in, in current society, there's obviously massive amounts of, of zero hour contracts agency work, you know, temporary work. Um, what, what's the thinking around engaging these sorts of, of trades, jobs uh, to become unionised? Well, there's some good work going on within GMB, particularly in the campaign against Amazon and the way they're treating their workforce. So Amazon are damaging the environment. Their own workforce recognise that in their working practices you know, there's health and safety issues with um, the people that are manning their factories and um, distribution centres. You know, as you say, they're often on zero-hour contracts or engaged through agency workers. And unfortunately, the law in the country doesn't support their rights because it's um, formulated in the interests of capital. So it does require collective action and it does require unions with the strength of GMB to take on some of these big 
corporations who don't look after their workers and Amazon is certainly one of them. Uber, again, GMB has um, combined with others to take a legal case against Uber for their working practices. So the use of strategic litigation can be part of a political and industrial campaign that will benefit the members. And GMB are one of the unions, along with um, Unite, that tend to um, identify those issues and um, try to use them for the benefit of their members. And that then reflects in the work that I do within my firm and the work that I do within the Haldian Society of Socialist Lawyers. So in my experience that I've had, um, I used to work for a bank uh, for a number of years and, and I noticed that in, in the period that I was there, that contracted workers in permanent contracted work, those with security and benefits, it went from 70% of the workforce down to 40% of the workforce within seven years. And what I found was the agency staff that came on and I think this is this is almost the key of of how to of how to uh, if we can crack this, uh, we potentially have a chance about unionising this sort of u- workforce. And the problem is, it's what's unsaid rather than what's said. And what I mean by that is, there's almost like an innate uh, meritocracy that most people have inside them, where they feel if I work hard enough, I will be recognised, um, and by merit, I will be given a job. And that was never said. That was never said by management or anything like that. But because it's a, there's a sense of it in 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 the UK, you often get temporary staff that come in. You know these targets. They'll over excel the targets, which increases the targets overall. Um, you know they, they they they're there half an hour before they should start. They finish half an hour late, and nothing's ever said about getting a permanent job. But it's this idea of a meritocracy, it's this idea of if I work hard enough, it's potentially going to be a job at the end of this. Now, what I found was, it's anecdotal, of course, but over seven years, there was no meritocracy, there was no jobs given out, and the, the, the company almost fed on what was unsaid, it, was, it, it fed on people's fears, and how you can get that sort of workforce to unionise when they've kind of got an innate feeling that they shouldn't rock the boat. Um, again, not said by management, nothing official in pamphlets. It's just a feeling that they had. If, if I unionise and I rock the boat, I'll be gone tomorrow. Um, that is what I always struggle to sort of, you know, how do you, how do you get round what is unsaid? How do you get round the innate feeling of meritocracy? And how can you hold companies to account who never actually state these rules Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with class consciousness. And I do have direct experience of the issues that you raise and raise so well, Adam. It is certainly true that um, capital places worker against worker and creates a sense of um, competition. However, labour is not a commodity. That is a founding principle of the International Labour Organization. It's reflected in international labour law. And my experience with agency workers, you talk about seven years, I took a case to the European Court of Human Rights on behalf of an agency worker because he was blacklisted precisely because he would not accept diminution in health and safety standards and he would not accept the treatment of his fellow workers and the way in which they were being taken advantage of. Now, that was in the construction sector, which is notoriously fragmented and is set up in such a way that unionization 
question. It is very difficult. However, he and others fought for themselves, fought for their other workers, and they were blacklisted as a result. So that sort of process um, replicates itself in different sectors, where, as you say, in fact, some things are left unsaid to create fear, to create a sense of um, futility of challenging management and a sense of apathy. But the way around that is, as it always was, class consciousness and solidarity, working together, recognizing that we have more in common, particularly as a class of worker, than we do that divides us and that agency workers should have um, rights in the same way as um, regular workers and that labor is not a commodity and workers should be treated in a way that allows them to flourish, to have a sense of job security and not to be undercut by lower wages or to be um, disincentivized by others who um, are in, on short-term contracts where they can make a profit and, and move on and then undermine the, the sort of sense of cohesion within a particular workplace. Yeah, just to follow on from that, it's, the other side to this actually um, because when the workforce, the, the permanent contracted workforce shrunk to say 40%, I did notice almost as a, as a survival technique that the union, and I honestly can't even remember the union that, that represented um, workers at this bank. It's one that, I, it's a smaller one. Because the, the union membership was shrinking, I did notice that a lot of things were stripped from what I would class as essential unionism so there was never any sense of class consciousness there was never any sense of of the workforce as a whole including temporary staff and in many ways what what i saw my experience was that people who were perhaps disruptive who were perhaps not good at the job um had had um strange personalities that didn't fit in it was these characters who were actually paying dues to unions as almost like a shield to protect them and their bad character. Um, and, also, and I did feel that the union was, was, often, was often protecting workers that were simpler union members because they just wanted another layer that the company had to go through to get them sacked. So a lot, a lot of things that, like I say, I feel is essential uh, for, to, for a good union was stripped away simply for the fact that, and I believe it's because of the, the, the small proportion of unionised members. Um, I suppose the question is, is there a level that unions should never go below um, regardless of, of size, really? Is there, some, is there some foundation stones such as class consciousness that it should never be stripped from it? Because I believe that there is, um, and I found it quite distressing to see to see that side of unionism? Yes, well, uh, certainly within any um, union, there'll be those that don't embrace class consciousness and will look at it from an individualistic protectionist point of view. And that's not the nature of trade unionism, in my view. It's not class consciousness. There is this concept of insiders and outsiders where, you know, within a workforce, you have insiders, particularly those who are on permanent contracts and outsiders who are maybe your temporary agency workers or contract staff. And that there dilutes class consciousness. Now, there can be resentment between insiders and outsiders, if you like. The phenomenon that you're talking about where, you know, there are 
people who are utilizing trade unions for other means to protect themselves in an unjustified way sometimes you know that 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 isn't what trade unionism is about it can be disruptive for the union itself and can lead to a sort of dilution of the of the solidarity that's necessary because it can cause resentment within the union and outside of it but you know like any institution uh, trade unions have a, a wide variety of personalities and you know that is life to some degree however the broad thrust of trade unionism and the trade unionists that i've met are kind loving and principled people who yeah. fight for themselves but for others and there is that sense of solidarity and contributing to the the benefit of society as a whole and that is the objective of most trade unionists and most trade unions yeah definitely i think once a trade union specifically prioritizes individuals um over a collective the collective good i think it's it's potentially lost its way so moving from the subject of unionizing new swathes of labor to disputes in more what we might call traditional unionized industries thousands of gmb members of british gas began a fresh strike this week over the company's fire and rehire practices could you give us and our audience an overview of why this strike is happening what negotiations took place what your members asked was what british gas offered and why you've decided to turn down that offer well there's many different aspects to this dispute and I think um, I'm not um, privy to all the industrial negotiations that took place. However, I have supported and shown solidarity to my GMB members who are on strike. And I was at a union meeting on Tuesday where that was reiterated. Even though there's aspects of that um industry which GMB for Green New Deal would, would seek to change. Now, the key issue in that dispute, in my view, is the fire and rehire um, policy of, of British Gas and the way in which they, as a management, have sought to ex- extract um, you know, surplus value from the, the company and from the workforce, and then particularly in the midst of a pandemic and an economic um, recession, are seeking to make workers adhere to lower terms and conditions and have job insecurity in the um, process. And that is replicated in various other um, big companies and institutions. BA tried it as well, and Unite have stood up to them, just like GMB are standing up to British Gas and Centrica. So the way in which um, those disputes evolve often is a case that management think they can railroad through these policies on the back of the law, which is favourable to management, unfortunately. However, sometimes collective strength and public opinion can change the operation of the law. And if enough people support the GMB members and enough people um, are, you know, even from a consumer point of view in in solidarity with them, management can and do often rethink these policies. And, you know, sometimes they're just not sustainable. So 
I think that the strike will be successful because people recognize that GMB members have got a right to defend their interests. And fundamentally, the policy is unfair. And, you know, there should be no diminution of the terms and conditions in that process. Yeah, that's really encouraging. And, I, and, and you know, it is definitely encouraging, at least Labour are nominally opposing this practice as well. They do oppose that practice. Um, however, they need to put in place a policy and if in power legislation to fundamentally change the Labour law in this country for the interests of trade unions and their members and their families and their communities. The labour law in this country, being collective labour law and employment law in an individual sense, does not protect the interests of workers to the level it should do. And that's why these sorts of practices continue. So I think the the current Labour Party has has a lot more to do. But Green New Deal policies and um, supporting trade unions is the way forward. So Declan, um, for any GMB members that are out there that are listening, uh, that didn't realise or know about the uh, the Green New Deal that's happening within within the GMB, um, how can they become a part of it? What do they need to do to to be to be active in it? And also as well, anybody out there that's thinking of now becoming a GMB member, how do they go about it? To start off as a GMB member, um, it's quite easy to sign up through the website and you can sign up by direct debit. You can alternatively sign up through your um, company if they've um, got the uh, GMB representation there, but often it's it's as easy to sign up um, by the website. And, you know, then it's a case of joining via Facebook or Twitter, and then just simply turning up to a Zoom meeting and, and getting stuck in and organizing. And that's what we've done over the, the last year or so. And we have plans to keep organizing in advance of COP26 in Glasgow. And we're um, pressing ahead with those plans and we will have a delegation in Glasgow and we will um, advocate Green New Deal policies and there may be certain um, dissension within the GMB leadership on some of the points that we take. However, we believe that we're right and we will continue to advocate for them. Mate, that's all music to our ears. So Declan, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and I wish you well on your campaign. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure and you're doing great work. You're spreading the, the message and solidarity to you. You're very Brilliant. Much. Thank you. Okay, so this is the part of the show that is dedicated to the fighters, the healers and conservers of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout-out. Uh, Declan, can you go first this week, pal? Yes, I'd like to give a shout-out to Farhana Yamin. She's a lawyer, she's a climate lawyer, and she got herself arrested with Extinction Rebellion at the um, headquarters of the oil company Shell, and she's been um, prosecuted, but she's leading the way for climate justice and Green New Deal policies. Brilliant. Loving all these radical lawyers. Need more of them. Um, Yeah, thanks for that, Declan. Andrew? Mine goes out to a previous guest and GND 
supporter, Lydia Merrill. This week, in my first CLP meeting, she did a fantastic presentation about denuclearization and the current uh, UN laws that are passing this week in regards to uh, like the banning of nuclear weapons and how it was actually, as much as it sounds like a great thing, it's pretty toothless because most of the major nuclear powers aren't actually signed up to it. So she really kind of enlightened me. So thank you very much, Lydia. Yeah, we love Lydia. Lydia is one of my mentors. Uh, genuinely, she's brilliant. My shout out this week goes to MP Clive Lewis, who interestingly followed us on Twitter this week. Um, I've seen Clive speak on a number of occasions and he's definitely a Labour MP that fully understands the danger that we're currently facing. Um, he not only he not only engages with experts, he's become an expert himself, uh, which is really sort of rare, I believe, in, in sort of with MPs. So, Clive, this is both a shout out and an invite to come on the show, mate. Um, love, love you for your work you've done in the past. Come on the show and tell us what you've got in store for the future. Okay, so thank you to everyone that is listening. And remember, if you're if you helping the planet in any way, I say this every week, but I mean it. We love you. We appreciate you. And we hope you join us again next week. Take care, everyone. Bye.